All right, if you would, take your Bible and open to Daniel chapter 4. So as we think about prayer this morning, praying together, praying over Allison and Harper and thanking God for them, looking toward the end of the service this morning, uh, as Jaron said, we're going to have students up here after we've seen the doxology at the end and Jaron sends you out in the peace of the Lord. Uh, we're going to have students up here passing out those prayer cards for Falls Creek this week. I hope you'll come up and, and take one of those cards and be praying this week that God would draw students to salvation, that God would cause students to rededicate their hearts to him and work among the leaders there at Falls Creek. And so I hope you'll take those cards. Also, as part of the end of the service today, uh, when we finish the study of, of God's Word, I'm going to lead us in a time of guided prayer. The invitation today is going to be this time of prayer, but here's what I need you to hear. During that time of prayer, we are going to have people from our prayer team around the, the worship center. There'll be people at this door, this door, this door. There'll be people down here in the front. During that time of prayer, if God's at work in your life in a particular way, maybe you've been through a hard experience, maybe you're getting ready to start something new, maybe God is drawing you to salvation today. You've never trusted in Jesus, you've never been baptized as a follower of Jesus, and you just need to pray with somebody today. It could be physical, it could be relational, it could be spiritual, it could be whatever's going on. During that time of guided prayer, just get up from your seat, Go around the worship center, and there will be someone to pray for you. We want you to take advantage of that. We want to be a church that's praying for one another, praying in response to God's word. And so I just want to be really clear with you here at the beginning. When we get to the end, and I'm leading us as a church through a time of prayer, that's your opportunity as well to get up and to go and have someone pray for you and pray with you. I want you to know that's going to be happening. This morning, this morning, we are going to be walking through a fairly long chapter. We're just going to kind of jog through these verses. I want you to hear God's word. I want you to be looking for phrases and things that God would use in your heart. So we're going to work our way through these verses. We're going to get to the end. I want you to see the main theme of these verses. And then we're going to take a couple of minutes there at the end of the sermon to think about a very important concept in each of our lives. How do we deal with the reality of pride? Because this morning... We're going to learn about somebody who thought he was the goat, <laughs> who then God caused to act like a goat so that he could turn around and truly worship the one who created the goats. Now, if you don't know goat, G-O-A-T, if you don't know goat, goat stands for greatest of all time. So I thought as we got started and we're going to learn about somebody who thought he was the goat, we should settle a couple of goat debates up front. Goat debate number one, greatest of all time. Now this is an easy one. There is really no discussion to be had. We just started with a very simple one here. You can't get this one wrong, okay? So you settle among yourselves, greatest of all time. Okay, thank, thank you, all right. I'm glad we didn't have too much church disunity uh, around that one. So number two, goat debate. Oh no, what happened? We lost our screen, okay. Goat, Avengers, Star Wars. I tried to pick two of the better options from the two, Avengers or Star Wars. Ooh, there's a little more disunity uh, in the church around this one, okay? So, uh, number three, you've already got a preview of it, Captain Crunch or Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I hear a lot of Captain Crunch people in the, uh, in the audience, so... 
we know that the greatest cereal is probably none of those. Like, uh, there's a better. I'm just a good old school honey bunches of oats guy. Like, at the end of the day, just give me honey bunches of oats, and you can't go, can't go wrong with that. Okay, greatest of all time. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. The last time we saw King Nebuchadnezzar speaking to all the nations and peoples, he was calling them to worship an idol, and if they didn't, he was going to bring violence. Now, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is calling all the nations to peace and to praise. What, what's happened here? Now, to make sense of Daniel 4, let me tell you up front, the first three verses actually belong to the end of the chapter. So you're going to see a story. These three verses reflect what happened after the story in chapter 4. So Nebuchadnezzar is proclaiming peace. What's he so excited about? Verse 2, it has seemed good to me, says Nebuchadnezzar, to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Can I tell you something? Your response to God, your, your praise, frankly, even your attendance at church will be completely different when you don't see God simply as doing something in someone else's life, but God's actually doing something in your life. Because before, Nebuchadnezzar was talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. And when all of your thoughts of God are about what he's doing in somebody else's life, it's going to be hard to think about praising him. It's going to be th- hard to think about gathering. But when you see God at work in your life, that's when the game begins to change. And that's what's happened to Nebuchadnezzar here. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. Nebuchadnezzar is talking about God. His kingdom, God's kingdom, is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. Who is this guy? <laughs> like, they would not have recognized King Nebuchadnezzar at this point. Previously, he's trying to draw all worship to him. He wants to act like his kingdom will never end, and now he's praising the one true God. Just a quick reminder, don't give up on people in your life. People that you feel like are so far from the Lord, that want nothing to do with the things of God, that don't care anything about Jesus or being a part of a church, don't write them off. No one would have ever imagined King Nebuchadnezzar would be in this position, giving praise to God, and yet here he is. The question is, how in the world did he get to this point? Verse 4. Here's what happened. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my palace, in my house, and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So what Nebuchadnezzar is telling you is that this situation that changed his life, he was in a really easy time in life. He was prospering. With a life like this, who needs God? (laughs) Don't forget, people who seem to be at ease, who seem to be prospering, there's often a lot more insecurity and fear behind the scenes than you actually realize. And sometimes it's when life is at ease and everything's comfortable and everything's prospering that in that moment, God will get our attention and draw us back to him. Verse six, so I made a decree in this moment that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream, 
but they could not make known to me its interpretation. <laughs> now, the last time Nebuchadnezzar called on these guys, he wanted them to guess what the dream was. He wasn't even telling them, but he probably thought this time they can surely do it. I'm going to actually tell them the dream. All they have to do is interpret it for me. Again, they can't do it. So what does he do? He calls on his good buddy Daniel at this point. Verse 8, at last Daniel came in before me. He who was named at that time Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. And he's going to tell you about the dream. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Okay, kids, if you've got scrap paper, this is your time to put on the imagination hat and get out the crayons because there's a dream here, there's imagery here that you can probably draw and, and help to make sense of. Nebuchadnezzar is having a dream, and in the dream, it involves this magnificent tree that sits at the middle of the entire world. This type of imagery was common in the ancient world. We actually find it in writings even outside the Bible. Uh, within the Bible, you can find it in Ezekiel chapter 17 and 31, referencing great empires who thought that they were at the center of the universe. This great tree is a symbol of the divine world order. This great tree is a symbol of whatever sits at the middle of the universe to give life and to protect life and to bring order it's the center around which everything else revolves. Think even about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the tree of life and the tree of the wisdom of uh, knowledge of good and evil that was there in the garden. This is the imagery of a godlike tree that gives life and preserves and protects. And King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a tree that was magnificent that was sitting at the very center of the universe, the very center of the world. Verse 11, this tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. Think about Tower of Babel language. There's so much reflection of Tower of Babel in, in this idea. The, the tree reached into heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So this is a really powerful picture that, that this tree is giving life and protecting. There's so many Garden of Eden reflections you find here until you get to verse 14, <laughs> or verse 13. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, think of an angel, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, chop down the tree. This is where your dream goes from a happy dream to a nightmare. Uh, this great lumberjack is coming to, to chop down this magnificent tree. Chop it down. Lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds fly away from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the wet of heaven, or with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. Stop there just for a second to see what's going on. This great tree in the middle of the universe, this great tree of prosperity and life, 
an angel comes down and says, chop down this tree, judgment. Judgment is coming against this tree, divine judgment. It's gonna be chopped down, but it's gonna be chopped down in such a way that the stump remains. It's an image that God's not finished with this tree. And then the imagery gets really strange because then we stop talking about a tree and we start talking about a beast-like feature, this beast-like creature that's exposed to the elements of the world. Verse 17, or verse 16, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast mind, an animal's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. So a complete amount of time pass by. The sentence that comes is by the decree of the watchers. The decision comes by the word of the holy ones to the end or, or for the purpose that those who are living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. All right, for your Bible highlighter, Bible marker, mark verse 17 there because you're getting at the core of this dream. This dream is to remind Nebuchadnezzar that he's not ultimately in charge of the world. That there is one who establishes rulers. There is one who gives life. And Nebuchadnezzar, you're not it. Verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, you, Daniel, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Just a quick word about these magicians. I have no idea how they kept their job. Like, this dream is not particularly hard to interpret. Like, surely they could get the idea. Um, when they say they're not able to interpret the dream, my guess is they don't want to interpret the dream because they really do understand what's behind it, and, and it's not going to be good for King Nebuchadnezzar. So verse 19, Daniel, who just in case you forgot, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. In other words, don't shoot the messenger. I hope this dream isn't about you, but, but I'm afraid it is. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, this tree whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which food was for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and this tree in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, um, that tree is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness, O king, has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion stretches to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, an angel coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of bronze and iron in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. Verse 24, here's the interpretation, O king. This dream is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. This is coming as a warning. Pay attention to this, King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, 
You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, or like our dog, who apparently loves to eat the backyard um, at home, but you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, or a goat, or a dog, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. It just means you won't have a house. You're going to be roaming around. You're not going to have any place to cover you. You're going to be covered with the dew. And seven periods of time shall pass over to you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Again, what's the purpose of this? That King Nebuchadnezzar would recognize who's actually in charge of the world. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you realize that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Here's what I'm telling you to do. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and get rid of your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel gives the king the interpretation. He says this is going to happen. He gives him this warning. Surely the king's going to listen, right? Like the word of God has come to him. It's been interpreted by the prophet of God. All he has to do is repent and turn back to the Lord and trust him and practice righteousness and realize that God's in charge, not him. There's no way he can screw this up, right? Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, and friends, before you make fun of Nebuchadnezzar, we forget God's word in 12 minutes, or 12 hours, or 12 days. After 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Oh, I got some more. Um, this, this language about walking on the roof, don't miss an incredible parallel with King David walking on the roof of his palace when he should have been at war. He's walking on his palace roof and he looks down and he sees Bathsheba. In a moment of prosperity, in a moment of comfort, in a moment of being where he was not supposed to be, literally looking down on others, that is when his downfall happens. So there's no doubt that there's a parallel between Nebuchadnezzar and King David in the way that their pride becomes, comes before the fall. Their pride of looking down on others ultimately leads to their fall. The king answers in verse 30 and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, I know we're trying to jog through this, but let's look at verse 30, because this is an amazing verse. When Nebuchadnezzar was up on the top of his palace and looking out, what would he have seen? Those of you that know of the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He had established by his power and by his resources one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. History says that the walls of Babylon were so thick that you could drive a four-horse chariot along the top of the wall and turn a U-turn without any trouble. That's how thick the walls of Babylon were. He had built this. And what does he say? He says, look how great I am, that I have built this. Do you know how much trouble we're in when we look around at the world and things that have happened and we start to think about how great we are 
in that moment. Look, look at this business my hands have built. Look at this family that I've raised up. Look at these accomplishments. Look, look at these friends. Look at how many people I have connected to me on social media. How great I must be. What are you poised for at that point? A very, very, very long fall. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. You love the imagery. There's, there's humor, ironic humor in this. <laughs> he thinks he's so great, God's words have to fall down to get to him as he's in the process of being brought down. The words fell from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and, you're, um, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you finally realize that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, again, because he, he didn't have a home, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. What a beautiful phrase in the Old Testament that gets overlooked. Man, think about that phrase. What is the turning point for Nebuchadnezzar? It's when his eyes are lifted to heaven. Where have his eyes been up to this point? Either they've literally been looking down on others, or he's been admiring everything that he created, and when he becomes like a beast, all he's doing is looking down at the grass trying to find his next meal. When does his life change? When he looks up to heaven. When he takes his eyes off himself, off this world, and turns his eyes back to God. When will your life change? When we take our eyes off ourselves and look to Jesus. When we lift up our head, when we remember who our creator is, when we realize where our salvation comes from. The change for Nebuchadnezzar has to do with where he looks. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. I no longer acted like an animal. For the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors, my Lord, sought me again, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Except this time, now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. From these verses, let's not miss the main theme of these verses. The main theme of chapter 4 is really just the same main theme that we've seen throughout Daniel. That we are called to praise and trust the one who truly has all authority on earth. That we don't put our trust, 
or our faith or give our worship to any human power, any human ruler, any human king, anything of this worth, nothing of this earth is worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise, worthy of our trust, other than the one who has created all things. So lift up your eyes, lift up your eyes, church, and look to the one in whom you place your trust, the one who gives salvation, that this is the calling to the people of God at this time, and it's the same calling that we have. And if that's true about our lives, that we would learn to boast only in the cross of Christ, that we don't find pride in anything that our hands do, that we don't find pride or boasting in anything in this world, we boast in the cross of Christ because, check out this contrast. In Daniel chapter four, there was a king who thought he was God and had to be humbled. In the New Testament, we find one who truly was God and humbled himself so he could become the king of kings. Don't miss the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 4 and the story of what Jesus came to do in the New Testament through the power of the gospel because around that question is how you answer the question, what is at the center of my life? What is at the center of my story? This message of what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? Why do people talk about salvation so much? Because we're trying to answer the question, what's at the center of my life? And when you think about the salvation that Jesus brings, don't forget those verses in Philippians chapter two that that come back around this topic. Philippians chapter two, verses five through six. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held onto, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why do we have any hope of salvation from sin and death? It's because of humility. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross, that on the cross, he defeated the power of sin and death. So let me stop right here before we get to this final piece of the puzzle. Let me stop and ask you this question. What is at the center of your life? (laughs) If someone drove into the core of your life, if looked into the core of your life, who or what is on the throne of your life? Who or what rules your life? Are you at the center of the universe? Are you at the center of all things? Have you placed somebody else at the center? Or can you truly say, Jesus Christ is at the center of my life? If you cannot answer it in that way, can I tell you that today is the day of salvation? That salvation today means that you admit, you know what, I don't need to be at the center of my life. (laughs) I'm not the one who holds the world together. I can't bring salvation to anyone, much less myself, Take myself out of the center and put the creator right there. The one who gives life and the one who brings salvation. If you are uncertain about that, if you are uncertain about your salvation, if you're uncertain about your eternal destiny, here in a few minutes when we have that time of prayer, don't wait, don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed. We want to call you to trust in Jesus. We want to call you to put him at the center of your life because it transforms everything about your life.
Because life is this continual process from pride to humility. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you are on a constant progression of working from pride to humility. Less of me, more of Christ. Less of me in the center of things, more of Jesus in the center of things. When you think about pride, let's talk about pride for just a second because as followers of Jesus, um, and, and frankly, if you read many news reports about what's happening in church life right now, God is in the process of breaking down a lot of pride in our, in our world, taking a lot of people who elevated themselves too high and bringing them back down and reminding us that he's in charge. When we talk about pride, what are we talking about? Well, pride can obviously come if, if you're successful, talented, you got a lot of things going for you, life is prospering. There's that kind of pride where you really do look out and say, wow, look what I've accomplished. But let me tell you, there's another kind of pride. There's a kind of pride that comes in the form of crippling anxiety because we convince ourselves that we hold life together, that we can truly change other people. And if you want to know who that point is for, that point's for me. <laughs> uh, my pride may not show up in, wow, look what I've done, but you know where my pride shows up? It shows up in crippling anxiety when I think that it's my job to hold everything together. That's pride. Pride can show up when we are constantly looking and thinking about ourselves and all of our weaknesses and all of our self-doubts and what does everybody think about me. That too is putting yourself at the center of the story. When you spend all your time wondering, I wonder what people think about me, we're reinserting ourselves into the center of the story. Pride sometimes shows up in times of strength and accomplishment, but don't miss how pride can show up in times of weakness and self-doubt. C.S. Lewis is attributed with a great quote about humility. C.S. Lewis says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility doesn't mean putting yourself down. Humility doesn't mean denigrating the good work that God wants to do in your life. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. That I go through a day, I go through a week, and realize I'm not at the center of everything. That there is a God who is perfectly capable of holding all things together. There is a God who is perfectly capable of bringing transformation. I'm not him. I need to learn to trust him. How do you go in your life? How do we go as a church from pride to humility? It's a three-step pattern every time. Number one, God has to get our attention. Now, you may not eat grass. <laughs> uh, your fingernails may not grow as long as a, a bird's claw. You know, that may not happen to you. But God has ways of getting our attention, doesn't he? How does he do that? Well, frankly, sometimes it's probably through a dream that God gets our attention. Let me give you a couple of other ways that God will get your attention. God will get your attention when he gives you a glimpse of where your life is hit, headed if you keep going down the path you're going down right now. Sometimes in God's good mercy, through something that somebody else says to you, through something you realize about your own life, you will realize if I keep going down this path, it's not going to end in a good place. And God will use that to get your attention. Sometimes God will bring discomfort, difficulty into your life, Sometimes it's really hard things like the job that you always wanted that's no longer there, the job you've been seeking after that you can never seem to find, the situation in life that seemed to be going so well and it falls apart. 
God will use those things to get our attention and remind us that he's at the center. And when he does that, he changes where we look. Instead of looking at ourselves, we begin to look up to him. You'll know you're going from pride to humility when you find yourself spending more and more of your time in prayer and praise. You're moving from pride to humility when you spend more and more of your time in prayer and praise. And what happens at that point when you look to the Lord, he changes the way you view other people, the way you view your possessions in life, the way you think about everything that goes on in your life, that you realize everything I have comes from God, so everything I have is for God. In this story with King Nebuchadnezzar, we find out that pride comes before the fall, that he's not the greatest of all time. There's one who is, and that's the creator God. The question is, what's at the center of your story? Is your life defined by pride? Or is your life defined by ultimate trust in the one true God who has provided salvation through Jesus Christ? Those aren't just rhetorical questions. Those are questions we need to answer. So here's what I want to do for us. I want to invite you into a time of introspection, a time of prayer. I'm going to guide you through a time of prayer. If you bow your heads, close your eyes with me. I know it's easy to check out. Closing prayer, we're going to be finished. This is not that time. This is the time to say, God, what do you want to do in my life? And at this very moment, I want to let you know there's people from our prayer team who are moving around the worship center to be able to pray for you. Friends, if you're here this morning and you know that you have never trusted in Jesus for salvation, you do not know where you would spend eternity, you're unsure about what it means to be a Christian, don't let your pride, don't let your pride about who you're sitting next to, don't let thoughts of shame or guilt about what's happened in the past, don't let any of that hold you back. Let me invite you right now to just get up and go and talk to somebody. Ask someone to pray for you. That today would be your day of salvation, that you would take yourself off the throne of your life and that you would put Jesus there where he belongs, that only he is able to save you, only he is able to give life. Don't let your pride take you home today without responding to God's work in your life. Maybe your pride has kept you from being baptized. You've gone too far in life, too many things have happened, what would people say? They think I'm already a Christian, I've already been baptized. God calls us to display our faith through this picture of baptism. And maybe pride has held you back from that. Maybe pride has held you back from connecting to a church. Maybe you're here today and you've had bad church experiences in the past and the way of handling that is just to disconnect from church for a long time. And you've had to drop your pride and say, no, I need to reconnect with the people of God. I need to be back in worship. I need to be growing in faith. If that's you, spend time in prayer right now saying, God, I trust you. My pride has kept me away from church, but God, I commit to you that I need to be a part of a local church, whether that's here or somewhere else. Friends, don't let, you, don't let your pride keep you away from what God wants to do in your life. If you need prayer for healing for your family, let me invite you to go to someone around the room right now. 
just ask for prayer for, for something going on in your life, in your marriage, with your kids. Don't let pride keep you from asking someone else to pray for you. We will never move forward in our Christian life if we held everything in because of pride. That we're willing to reach out and ask someone to pray for us and care for us. For some of you this morning, pride is preventing you from reconciling with a family member or friend. There's a broken relationship in your life and you know you shouldn't let pride stand in the way of reaching out to that person and seeking reconciliation. Oh, but our pride is so, so hard. So hard to let go of. You might even be in the right. You probably are in the right. But the relationship was broken with your family member or friend and you've let pride stand in the way. Would you allow God to bring humility into your heart today? so that you could seek reconciliation with someone? Maybe your pride is such that you keep trying to fix other people's problems. (laughs) You're so anxious because you're trying to control somebody else's life and you just need to let go of that and say, God, I can't change this other person's life. I can love them but I have to trust you. That your life is so overwhelmed with anxiety because of situations that are outside of your control. Friends, trust in Jesus today. Hand that circumstance to the Lord. And Father, as we wrap up our time together today, God, I wanna pray standing here before this church family as a part of the body of Christ in this country and around the world. And God, we repent of the fact that church, many churches, that we have been guilty of pride in our churches. God, remind us that unless the Lord builds the house, the builder works in vain. God, that you would return to building your church. God, that churches would not be known for their strategies, that churches would not be known for their worldly greatness, but churches would be known as a place where people find healing through Jesus. And God, that you would do that work of reminding us that you build the church, that you work for your glory. And God, that we would take ourselves off the throne and we would return you to that place for your glory. God, let that be true of Emmaus. God, that this would be a place of humility, not of pride. And you would do an amazing work in drawing people to salvation. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.